Hello and welcome to the Rising Warrior podcast. Today we are talking with William Burnett. He is a 12-year military veteran from Australia and is currently working as a breathwork practitioner. Through his studies and his devotion to learning about how humans can regulate their nervous system, he has landed in a space that affords him the opportunity to facilitate science-based breathwork practice that stretches the parameters of spiritual experience. We go into detail about what breathwork is, how we as humans react to trauma, and how we can overcome it. Oh yeah, by the way, he's also running across Australia making a documentary about it. So thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. All right, William, um, let's start off with, give us a working definition of what breathwork is. Hmm. Breathwork is the application of a structured practice to regulate our nervous system. So regulating the nervous system, uh, that means it can go both ways, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, should, I should contextualize that a little bit, like a structured practice of applied breathwork. So breathing with an intention uh, to some cadence, tempo, duration, vibration, uh, to achieve or elicit a response and regulate the nervous system. And like you said, it can go up or down. We can upregulate or downregulate, or we can choose to sit right in the middle, which is where we'd find ourselves in flow state. Hmm. Um, how long have you been doing this breathwork? Well, let me start here. Uh, what hmm. got you into breathwork? Uh, yeah, good question, man. So, and this is a rabbit hole. So excuse me if I go down. No, let, let's go down the rabbit <laughs> We call Sean the white rabbit because he loves going down rabbit holes. So let's take us away. I'm there with you. <laughs> Excellent. So when I left the military after 12 years of service, um, I was struggling to integrate back into a civilian life. I was struggling with the concept of not being a military person anymore. I was struggling with the concept of not being able to provide for my family uh, sustainably without the concept of support and comfort of the military organization. And I was struggling physically to adapt to the civilian life because what my body knew was a series of behavior that when you rock up at 0600 every morning, you're on. Whether you're training, whether you're into work, whether you're facilitating classes for uh, troops, you're on it. And then at 1600, 1630, at the end of the day, same thing. You're not essentially downregulating or coming out of that space because when you leave base, you're still wearing the hat. You are still this person. And so my body had trouble downregulating uh, biomechanically as well. So I was still like receiving a lot of uh, moments where I was upregulated, wanting to move, wanting to run, wanting to lift without any reason to or any mm. uh, intention to. Uh, and so that, that really uh, impacted me for the 12 months in my, in my transition out of the military. It really, really impacted me. I, I got quite depressed. I was uh, very narky towards my, my partner and my previous wife as well, which makes, um, which makes integrating a co-parenting relationship with a previous partner very, very difficult if I'm the problem. Uh, and so, <laughs> and uh, so, what I chose to do was invest some time and financial um, gain into education around breathwork. 
And mm. the, the reason I chose that was because I just spent 10 years in the strength conditioning industry. I knew what breath could do for the body in a performance sense. Uh, but I was curious about what it could do to get me in a space of uh, like meditation or a space of altered consciousness. So long, long story short of that version is I went to an ayahuasca uh, ceremony where I sat for three days. Um, and at the end of my last ceremony, the next day we were integrating and I sat outside in this snake infested grassy area with this gentleman um, who I'm, I still remain very close friends with. And he said, hey, man, have you ever done breath work? And I'm like, oh, I don't think in the sense that you're about to show me. And so he guided me through a space. And it was, um, if not more, equivalent to the potency of what ayahuasca brought through. Mm. And so after that experience, uh, my curiosity was like, oh, I'm all in. Like I am, I am the white rabbit now. I'm going down this hole and I'm going to explore as many burrows as I can. Um, so the, the instinctive part of my strength and conditioning nature, I went and, uh, I did XPT. I looked at Laird and Gabby's, uh, performance breathing, uh, platform. I then went and did Brian McKenzie's shift, the shift mm -hmm. adapt and looked at that as well. And then in that moment or in those, that journey, I was experiencing this transformation of myself. I was noticing that I was waking up less pissed off. I was noticing that I was saying less fuck use during the day. And I was noticing that my physical body was actually feeling a lot younger. And so I decided that I would uh, change lanes. I would steer my curiosity towards um, breathwork practitioners that were teaching from a more quote unquote spiritual direction. Um, I'd experienced the science-based elements of breath. And then I wanted to experience the spiritual side of things to which I was experiencing in my breathwork practice. Uh, I spent some time studying under uh, Dan Brule, who is a fantastic um, breathwork practitioner, quite world-renowned as well, um, very credible man. And then did some study under Casper Vandermeulen as well, who mm. uh, is also just as reputable. And I, I started to see not just my body feel better or my emotional health feel better the health irregularities the imbalances the ailments that i was diagnosed with and i have a long list of reports scans blood tests bone scans mris ct scans um of all these these things that i was diagnosed with when i left the military and i'd gone back for a, a review 60 to 70 percent of these conditions had disappeared and my treating therapist at the time was like, what the hell are you doing? I said, psychedelics, breathwork, and meditation. <laughs> he said, okay, I'm, interest I'm interested in more. And to me, that was the reassurance I needed in myself to be like, okay, this breathwork thing, this is a real deal. This is it, you know? What kind of ailments and uh, whatever syndromes, disease, whatever the hell you were labeled with? Uh, okay, so I had uh, rheumatoid arthritis in hips, knees, ankles, and shoulders. I had two bulging discs, uh, spondylosis, scoliosis, more than 40 degrees. I had uh, Baker's cysts in both knees, both shoulders, tear of both my shoulders, um, uh, the whole joint, really. The, both joints were pretty mangled. Um, I was diagnosed with PTSD, depression, bipolar, personality disorder, I like how you mentioned That's quite the list. <laughs> I like how you mentioned had. 
Do you have any more remnants of these at all? I, I'm I'm curious of the uh, the scoliosis and the RA, the rheumatoid arthritis. Any remnants of that at all? No flare-ups, no reacts. Um, the thing that I do feel is uh, after long, as you, as you gentlemen are both aware, I'm running across the country, and so I'm doing quite a large volume of running. Well, mm -hmm. was my my foot is injured currently, but I, I was doing quite a large volume of running. I noticed that my joints and tendons were taking a little longer to catch up in the recovery phase, uh, to which I was applying more holistic remedial therapy, a lot more breath work and more intentional breath work into that space, more cold exposure, and I'm um, taking specific supplements and herbs to um, you know increase the rate to which my body was repairing those. So I don't I don't wake up in a bent hunch over position anymore, struggling to walk in the first 10 minutes of waking up. Uh, I can put my socks on and my shoes on without any discomfort. I can touch my toes, hands flat on the ground from a forward fold. Um, my flexibility has increased. My spine is the straightest I think I've ever had it uh, in all my life that I've noticed. Uh, no impact from bulging discs anymore. Uh, and there's no evidence that I do have bulging discs anymore from this previous scans that I had. And in regards to the emotional side of PTSD, the personality disorder, the depression, I imagine the depression was a result of all lifestyle factors going on at that time. Not, not to do with my experience in the military. I imagine it was a, a myriad of lifestyle factors. Mm -hmm. uh, and I and I want to I want to caveat this as well because this is a popular conversation when people want to sling some shit at me over here in Australia, uh, because I am filming this documentary and, and causing mm -hmm. a bit of um, controversy with how I'm doing it. Uh, I did I did not go to war and put bullets down range at people, and I did not receive bullets back. Was I in a dangerous place? Yes, but any place could be potentially dangerous in the places that we deploy to. Right? There is always a risk and a danger at hand. Uh, the, the experiences that I received in the military that would, I would assert, uh, caused the uh, emotional imbalance were uh, association with specific hierarchy in positions, right? Working under specific people, being bullied, uh, yep. being uh, told I'm worthless, uh, being like being at the bottom, right? Being, being where, the, where the shit rolls downhill, I'm at the bottom of the hill, being that person for time, right? Yep. <laughs> and so my my emotional imbalance or my mental imbalance when i left the military uh was this struggle with identity shifting right? mm -hmm. um I, I i honestly don't believe in the term post-traumatic stress because to some degree the stress is always present yep. right we, we never forget about the story or the occasion or the event to which we perceive the risk to which the trauma occurred we never forget about that. We never forget about um, the times to which we perceived ourselves to be at risk or put ourselves in an upregulated state to which we thought we needed to survive. We never forget about that. And so it makes no sense to me to be post-traumatic stress, right? We might be after the fact, but it still lives within us all the time. But I would also assert that we become better at managing how we perceive the stress and how we played a role in that event or that scenario. Um, I would love to give you an example. If you gentlemen are open to receiving a bit more information and a bit more detail to one of the situations I Let's was present with. Yes. All right, cool. 
Um, yeah. Sean- Hold on. I got a question for you, Bill. Yeah, bro. Or uh, something, something to bring up real quick. Uh, I love how you spoke into um, like what your experience of, like was while being in the military and, and that conversation around like being deployed, not being deployed, what, what we've experienced. Yeah. Um, I had done some previous research and I just wanted to share real quick before you go into uh, your experience that <clears throat> there is a significantly small amount of people who actually deploy and see combat. If we look at the numbers of diagnosed PTSD, the majority of them are not people who saw combat. And so that that is super important because there is a stigma attached to PTSD as if, oh, this person suffers from PTSD. They must have been blown up. They must have you know been in combat and stuff like that. And, and I know that was my initial uh, stance on it or like thoughts on it when I was first learning about it. Because like even as I was joining the military, I didn't quite understand what PTSD was. And yeah, through through looking up some of the statistics, like that's just not true. So I'm happy that you spoke into that because that is huge, right? Because mm-hmm. most of the people that we're talking about when it comes to veterans, they haven't seen combat and that's okay. Like they're like, you know, that's a rabbit hole for another day, right? Diving down the stories of what it means to deploy and not deploy. And um, I actually met someone, uh, uh, a friend of a friend who worked on my dog who is currently sitting on my lap. Um, he was in the army. And he, his PTSD showed up as him not deploying. And so like he had a bunch of stories around his identity of being in the army because he didn't deploy. And like, what does that mean about him? So I'm really happy that you brought that up. And yeah, I would love to hear uh, about your experience and your example. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great um, point to make there, Sean, that, you know, the the combat veteran or the combat personnel, let's, let's talk more specifically special ops, special forces. These, these men and women are trained for a number of years to be conditioned to a certain potency of combat, meaning that they can put bullets down and receive bullets back with a pretty stable mindset, right? And and still be able to operate. They are trained for that. And I feel like when we say, um, that they're the only ones that experience PTSD is almost stealing valor away for the job that they've done. They are conditioned for that, you know, and it's not to say that they're not human or anything like that. It's just that they are more conditioned than the other personnel who have not experienced this level of combat and the perception to combat or being in an environment to which at any one time we could be rocketed or we could be blown up or we could be in the street, uh, you know, simply going through the markets there could be a situation where we have a rogue, you know, insurgent in the market on that day at that time. It is always a potential. It's always a possibility. And it's, it's ignorant to think that everybody should think that that's just okay. Right. Like where I deployed to uh, was an American base. um, And it was, it was, there was a lot of nations there, but regularly we would go into town into the markets and we'd do our shopping and whatnot. And at, at any one stage, I am in an environment that is unfamiliar to me. I am unfamiliar of the depths of their culture. I feel at risk because I could do something at any one stage that could cause some sort of, you know, um, confrontation or something to that degree to which I feel scared to. And I'm not mm-hmm. the only one, right? Like a lot of people feel that in a lot of senses. Um, I'll, I'll, I will talk about my experience and it was actually on home soil here in Australia. Uh, actually, one was one was uh, in the Caribbean, actually. The first one I'd like to talk about is 
how I responded uh, to an event that was quite confronting. And the confrontation was uh, I walked into a gym facility that I managed because I was a strength and conditioning coach in the military. I started the first uh, CrossFit affiliate in the military here in Australia and opened the first CrossFit affiliate gym here in Australia. Um, I started it as the start of this project that I embody right now, a way for people to come and disassociate and disconnect from this organization or the machine, the thing to which we are institutionalized to. I wanted it to be a community to where people could come, lift some weight, learn how to move their bodies, learn how to breathe a little bit, do some Romward, and maybe have a beer and a wine on a Friday afternoon and sit around and you know shoot the shit, right? It was uh, all volunteer. I did 40 plus hours a week that I would volunteer to people to come do classes. No one paid. Um, I got the unit to purchase all the equipment uh, to help build the facility itself. And then my previous wife and I actually built the gym. Like we did all the flooring and everything. Uh, so this one afternoon, I'm going in early to set up class, which is a normal thing that I would do. Uh, and I had my own set of keys. Now we had a spare set of keys in the office that I was working in uh, that uh, people could come and sign out. Now, on this particular day, someone had come and signed out the keys. The person who had signed out the keys was going through a space in their life uh, that was very challenging for them. And at this point figured that they would uh, end things. And so when I walked into the gym facility, mm. this person uh, was attempting to hang themselves from the rig. Now, my first response uh, was a fight or flight motion. It was like, fuck, what do I do? Now, I carry a Gerber on me, or I did carry a Gerber on me all the time. Had a knife every single time. So without any hesitation, went up, cut the rope. No concern for how far they would fall. I just wanted it wanted this person down right mm-hmm. cut them down uh then performed uh cpr or what i knew at the time for first aid uh and fortunately this person had not been up long enough to cut off the oxygen supply to the brain uh to which they could um you know take their own life now to me uh i was so upregulated that I didn't consider anything else, no detail. There's something that plays a role in what I did that prolonged my upregulation or the PTSD, quote unquote. And the things that prolonged that exposure was the fact that I was in an environment that was my environment, right? Like I was in the gym. This is my, my space, my home. I feel comfortable. There's no need to feel stress or danger. So when something like that occurs, it's essentially a mishap. It's not considered, holy shit, this is gnarly. Like this person is going through something so much Mm -hmm. so that they want to take their own life. And it wasn't until years later that I actually started to unpack that and be like, fuck, this person was going through something in order to take their own life. God willed it so for me to be there and act the way that I did. This person is living an incredible life. I have an incredible relationship with them right now. Uh, and, and continue to, but at that time, for me, it was like, fuck, that was pretty gnarly. Shit. Have a beer. Think about that. Put it away, put it down. Don't talk about it. And and to be quite honest, I've not talked about it in detail to any other personnel other than my direct line of command. They needed to know we needed to do an investigation, everything like that. Um, and so the person was well supported, which was 
odd as well because uh, the military doesn't perform well in that realm always, sometimes, but not always. And so this person was well supported uh, and to which they had their life back on track. Now, I didn't go to war to see that, right? I was at home on my own home base about to do something that I was, you know, was a routine for me. But when you're in that moment, you don't get a chance to take in the detail of what level of conditioning you have to that. I am not conditioned to see dead bodies. In fact, I've, I've seen quite a few now and still I'm not conditioned to see dead bodies, but I know what needs to be done when the situation occurs in order to mitigate the risk of the dead body remaining dead, right? And so my emotional imbalance or my mental imbalance came from situations such as that. Were they wartime? No. Was I in the military? Yes, I was still in the military, which means becoming a veteran and having PTSD or these mental imbalances or emotional imbalances, you know, this is common. This is a mm-hmm. common thing, not, not to the degree of which my event occurred, but it is a common thing for veterans to perceive a situation that had them upregulated that they weren't conditioned to. Yep. Um, two things. Uh, many of the veterans, not many, we'll just say a, a few of the veterans I've talked to, their PTSD moment actually happened before they were in the military. And the military was a pressure cooker that created the atmosphere for this to come out. Mm-hmm. And many times I've seen that. It's, yeah, you don't have to be shot at. You don't have to be in a um, combat situation to have PTSD. I mean, look how many people have traumatic events out there in the civilian world. And they've never been to another country. They, I mean, they've stayed in their home state of Michigan all their life and they're still uh, dealing with trauma. So yeah, I, I don't like the, the stigma or the label of, Oh, you've never been deployed or whatever. So why do you have PTSD? Well, I think that's utter total bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned upregulate and downregulate quite a few times. Mm-hmm. Would you care at explaining more about what that means and what that is for our listeners. Yes. Um, So when we're born, we are born with an operating system that wants us to survive. Not only that, it wants us to survive in the path of least resistance, meaning that our bodies and our consciousness want us to be as down-regulated as much as possible. Downregulation is the general term of being inside the cave, if we were cavemen, safe from things, resting, calm, relaxed, not having stress or anxiety to perceived arrangements or environments or social settings. Like our, our downregulation is directly correlated with the behaviors of our parasympathetic nervous system uh, to be more anatomical. And our parasympathetic nervous system is the place to which our body operates best from. When we eat, shit, sleep, drink water, breathe, we do all of those things efficiently when we are down-regulated. It means that our adrenal gland gets a chance to relax. It means that our body gets a chance to not sip on cortisol for a few hours, right? Um, It means that the balance of blood gases, chemicals and hormones in our body are at such a place where we can receive input and information easy 
and readily and more efficiently so that we can make better connected conscious decisions about our reality or our perceived existence. Our upregulated state is to say that we are outside the cave as cavemen. We are hunting or being hunted. We are in sympathetic dominance to where our sympathetic nervous system is telling us we need to be on the lookout for threats, danger, disaster. And so all of our senses are initiate, initiated and triggered so that we can pick up those bits of information, right? Um, and so I'll go back to that main point of we are born to be down-regulated. Unfortunately, and this is where the rabbit hole gets deeper, my friends, is in utero, <laughs> in utero, uh, depending on the level of stress or present trauma in the mum's reality or life uh, is directly correlated to the baby's level of stress as well, inclusive, but not limited to the birth itself, which is how we are seeing a lot more stress and anxiety and trauma in our paternal world and maternal world because of these elements. Now, that is to say, I'll use this example. I used it on uh, the Highly Optimized podcast the other week with Ryan. We were talking about um, his partner uh, and her Jewish heritage. And I was referring to uh, the work of Dr. Gabor Mate, who has done um, decades of work with trauma and specifically on Holocaust survivors. The elements of this trauma-related work is um, uh, the genetic line of people who were Holocaust survivors, the Jewish um, heritage of Holocaust survivors, and how that level of trauma was passed down through utero, right? Mm -hmm. Through the birthing narrative. They weren't genetically predisposed to it. They were predisposed to it because of it, it, it occurred and then it's passed down through this energetic signature, right? And, and being energetic beings, we have energetic signatures. Lance, you have one. Sean, you have one. I have one. And together we create this energetic field by, you know, being in coherence with each other. Now, for a general example, if a mother was to experience a situation to which she would perceive an outcome to be disastrous, meaning that her nervous system would go into sympathetic dominance, there is a potential that there could be trauma present. Trauma is not the, uh, not the situation that occurred. In my example, trauma is not the person trying to hang themselves. Trauma is a result of me perceiving what could mm -hmm. have occurred or how I perceived it. And so uh, for, for these Holocaust survivors, um, they went through significant amount of upregulated states, right? Where they were, they were put into survival mode 99.9% .9 of the time that they existed in that environment. They were put in survival mode, which means when they left and survived to downregulate or to come back inside the cave would mean that they would have to experience the event with a different mind, but at the same degree to which it occurred. Uh, Victor E. Frankel talks about this in logotherapy uh, mm -hmm. to where you, know, you, you would have to re-experience the event uh, embodied with a different mind. And Einstein refers to it as well, uh, trying to solve a problem with the same mind that created it. You can't do it, right? It's a biased mind. Uh, and so the survivors moving forward uh, would continue their lives, uh, not unscathed because they were emotionally carrying this weight of trauma, but would continue their life liberated, free, not in the camps, not in the environments, but not downregulated either because that still exists in them. Mm -hmm. so, when, so when they create babies and they have more babies, that is passed through the energetic signature onto the baby in utero. And we also got to be uh, 
cognizant of the fact that birthing in that space, in that generation, we didn't have a great level of knowledge, education or tools to provide a really good space for women to birth the way that they need to birth. It was usually get the baby out, let's do the best we can to save the baby, keep the mum healthy. Now in Western medicine, that has evolved into a space where uh, most births are run off a schedule or a timeline of the doctor, obstetrician, uh, you know, whoever might be there on the day on the roster. And if he wants to go play golf at 12, guess what? You're getting induced at 10 a.m. and we're going to have the baby out in two hours. That's not a narrative we can live from, guys. And so there's trauma present in that as well. And so these babies that are coming through, men, women, boys, girls coming through, are being brought up in an environment that is already upregulated without the parent knowing who conceived the baby, who gave birth to the baby. They're in an environment that are already upregulated and they don't know it. And so we move on. And we know this, fellas. We, we do the inner child work all the time. We wonder why there are, there are reasons to why we are conditioned or respond to specific ways. It's because of the initial 10,000 days of our life where we are being programmed and coming through that and learning how we exist in the world. I believe it was the book. It didn't start with you. Um, my wife will correct me on this later. Um, and it talks about the generational trauma and you were present in your grandmother. So your mom, when she was a fetus, uh, don't quote me on this timeline. Uh, when your mom was in your grandma's uterus, she was developing her eggs. Your mom was developing her eggs in utero around the eighth, maybe the 18th week. Anyway, so what happens to your grandmother gets carried down in utero through your mom and then through you as an egg. And then, yeah, comes down to you. Um, pretty gnarly stuff. Uh, and there's enough, uh, there's enough research out there to make it a sound science, even though it sounds a little out there. Well, we're, we're starting to explore um, literature in and around epigenetics, right? Being environmentally yep. and socially signaled. Um, and that, that's something to be considered and something I consider when I'm consulting with clients is lifestyle factors. Now, when people are presenting with health ailments or health irregularities that can't be either diagnosed or like can't, they don't know why these, these health irregularities or imbalances exist. Take a look into the generation, right? Generations three place from us lived in an environment to where the economics weren't the same, the environments weren't the same, nutrition wasn't the same, agriculture wasn't the same, right? Level of pesticides, pollution wasn't the same. And so that plays a direct impact on us. Mm -hmm. if, my, if my granddad, uh, you know, served in Vietnam, for instance, was exposed to Agent Orange, well, guess what? I already am exposed to that narrative or the chemicals that lives within him and his exposure to it and then the way that his body reacts to his environment when he comes back to Australia after deployment is directly correlated to my behaviors now as a human, right? So epigenetics is quite a sound environment right now that they're exploring, mm -hmm. um, that they are utilizing to support, you know, this, uh, this idea of uh, metaphysical trauma, right? So. And go ahead, John. Yeah. Something I want to uh, mention uh, one of, one of the guys that I follow for a while, and he's been a little bit of a mentor in the um, 
you know, I started following him for fitness reasons because I have back problems. Uh, Dr. Perry Nicholson is a really him a great, lot. yeah, he has a really great Instagram page called Stop Chasing Pain. And uh, he put it simply, right? We're talking about trauma. Uh, trauma occurs when the nervous system simply is not ready to handle the experience. And so I wanted to throw that out there to give people some context because I, like we mentioned before about, you know, deploying versus not deploying and PTSD, it's like trauma can occur at any moment. Right. And, and, you know, this is a conversation that we're having being upregulated versus downregulated and, you know, just want to link that as to why it's important to downregulate when you can to be in that parasympathetic state. So that way your body will be, better able to handle anything that that is thrown its way and so yeah i just want to throw that out there for all the listeners so that way they can understand a little bit more that like trauma isn't necessarily this big massive thing mm-hmm. all it requires is for your nervous system to be in a place to not handle the experience so mm-hmm. just wanted to, to make note of that yeah good point man i uh i classify that uh in, in some of my workshops where the nervous system we had even a few ways a spiritual way physical way an emotional way or an acute way to where mm. it's like sudden information comes in we process the information output and then we've got behaviors and so yeah it can happen instantaneously and if our nervous systems aren't conditioned or programmed to receive that amount of information at that particular time be upregulated put in a state of survival and the body will behave in a way that is correlated with that I want to bring up the, the fact that you had those, first of all, several ailments, um, how, how they spontaneously remitted. Um, I, I see this a lot in the clinic. A lot of people have these problems and we claim to know so much about the human body and yet we know so little, um, mm. specifically in autoimmune disease. Autoimmune disease is where the immune system attacks itself. And most of the time, we don't know where this comes from. Well, if we're so intelligent and understand so much about the human body, and yet we, yet we can't figure this out, um, it just goes to show that we actually know nothing. And many of the times, I believe a lot of this is our, our nervous system holding on to certain things. Um, so cool. Epigenetics, generational trauma. How does breath work work into this? Good question. I'm glad we got to this point too. <laughs> I knew we were going to get to it sooner or later. Yeah. And I'll directly answer your question spontaneously remitting. Um, you know, I took, I took 12 months to really sit and, and, and visualize repairing my body from the inside out. Being in the strength conditioning world, I have a, a sound level of education around anatomy and biology uh, to which I can visualize like a roadmap i can see how i could rebuild my my discs my vertebrae i can see how i can get in and clean out my joints and so i spent a good 12 months really sitting in that space and visualizing and breathing into that space now breath work comes in when i apply conscious practices that down regulate so bring our body down into a state of calm, rest and digest, relax, and allow me and afford me the space to be able to get to that place of visualization. I can't visualize the skeletal structure of my spine 
if I'm thinking about all of this all the time, every moment, I can't. There's too much information being received. Mm-hmm. And so I need to bring my, my nervous system in coherence with me. So it's listening, right? And you can apply different practices that do this. Nasal breathing does this. Why? Because our nasal, our nose are built to fucking breathe from, guys. Stop breathing through your mouth. Like, come on. Does mouth breathing have a place? Yes, it does. It does. And we can apply it to get upregulated, to get to a place of altered consciousness so that we can do inner work. Sure, we can get to that place. Wim Hof does that really well. Downregulate, nasal breathe, box breathing, triangle breathing, circular breathing, you know, uh, alternate nostril breathing. There are, there are plenty of methods to which we can apply it that do the same thing. They just do it in a different way. Is there a method better than the other? Nope. Is there a method suited to one person? Nope. All methods work. All methods are suited for everybody. Um, and so for me in that space for 12 months, breathing and visualizing, the like reconstructing my body, that was influenced first and foremost by Dr. Joe Dispenza, rebuilt his spine, got himself to walk again when they told him he wouldn't. Um, that was influenced and inspired by that. I thought, yep, let's do that. You know, let's give that a go. And when you notice tangible results it's like you can't unlearn that shit you know you you can't unexperience that stuff um and so what i do now with applied conscious breath is exactly that when somebody says to me hey will um you know i'd love to do a session with you or do a group session this is what i'm going through this is what i'm experiencing there are metaphysical chapters to which we could explore Paul Check goes through this really well in his curriculum where we talk about how men and women hold different levels of trauma and emotion in different parts of the body and why you can explore those behaviors. But if you have a basic understanding of, you know, for, for most men, we have bad backs. Why? Because our hips are jammed up. Why are our hips jammed up? Well, there are, there are physical behaviors. We sit at school for six hours in this position, hunch forward. We go join a nine to five where we sit in this position. We drive around, we sit in this position. And also... Most men have a spiritual and emotional relationship tied directly to the person who gave birth to them. That's, that's, you can't argue that point, right? And, and in that, we are directly emulating the stress to where the mother carries the baby in our hips. And when our hips stop working, the back stops working. Compensatory behaviors. The body will try and find the path of least resistance so that we don't die. And so it, it escalates. And so when people say to me, hey, Will, I've got this bad back. I'm like, okay, let's downregulate you because everybody needs to be downregulated. Uh, let's explore the story and narrative to which you may have come from. Uh, maybe there's some family stories going on that we can explore. Maybe they had a falling out with mum, maybe falling out with nan. Maybe there was some trauma present with nan. And then we can start to look at why the body is behaving in this way. There are definitely biomechanical patterns that could be causing the problem as well. But once again, more often than not, unless you'd know this, the compensatory behaviors something's not working because something else isn't working mm-hmm. and so the body will try to survive and and over time this is what you know becoming a sex, successful entrepreneur is get a large body of work you want to be a successful invalid you're going to have a large body of work of being imbalanced upregulated and in some sort of health irregularity mm-hmm. so how does this, how does breath work help? Yes, it brings up a down regulates us, 
Um, and how does it, lack of a better term, clear out the shit? We can create a space or curate a space um, that is built on trust, right? Like if I work with an individual or individuals, um, the relationship begins on trust. I can't, uh, acknowledging negation here and accepting it fully is I can't curate a space, get people to unfold and be vulnerable before I go and build some trust. There's, there's no trust there in order to give them the permission to let go. Even if I get them to a space where they're like super ventilating and the body's wanting to let go, they won't let go because mm. there's no trust. And so we can apply it once again, different uh, protocols of breath to get upregulated to where the body will start to open up and let go if the trust is present. Um, Coincidentally, I held a, uh, a space yesterday where I guided uh, 13 individuals through a breath journey. Now, the arrangement or the environment to which we were in, there was a level of trust present before the journey because we arrived and uh, the people who had the farm or the ranch hosted us, uh, provided an Ayurvedic lunch to where we joined hands, we blessed the food together, and then we sat and ate. And then we conversed and we connected before we even got to the breath work, we were tried, right? And so when I arrive at the space and we create an intention and somebody says to me, I'm working on this, I want to let this go. We have a level of trust that's present. And then I apply different breath work protocols. It's going to get you upregulated because upregulation can put you in a controlled state of survival, not an out of control where it's more sympathetic tone. There's actually more parasympathetic tone whilst being upregulated to which their body, hey fam, hey. <laughs> to which their body is uh, more willing to let go. Some science on that. Uh, an increased amount of carbon dioxide in the system stores in the tissue. Carbon dioxide is the gatekeepers for emotional baggage. All right, <laughs> when we store and compartmentalize emotional trauma or emotional experiences, they store in the tissue stores in our fascia in our bones in our blood it stores everywhere our bodies are like these big computer systems and so with more carbon dioxide present in the system which coincidentally is from upregulation, the longer that will stay in the system the longer that emotional experience will stay in the body mm. if we can if we can change the balance of blood gases and get more oxygen into the system we can create an efficient level of diffusion to where carbon dioxide is more present, readily available, ready to jump off because oxygen is present. If we can't create that exchange, there is no reason for carbon to leave. Right? There has to be oxygen to be present. And so with carbon dioxide being the gatekeeper of the trauma, holding it in the tissue, if we can apply breath, more upregulatory, more cathartic, more mouth, chest, get more oxygen in, we have more of a chance of getting the carbon that settles on the emotion to go, okay, I'll leave the body. And so the body will carry it out. The oxygen will come in and then out of nowhere, the body opens up. It becomes more vulnerable. We've become more willing to let go. And therefore the stories come forward. Hmm. How, how willing you are to accept those stories is completely up to the individual. If you know there's something there that's blocking you, but you keep creating these justifications and stories to keep it there in order to keep your identity, nothing's going to come through. You're going to be hitting wall after wall after wall. But if you're ready to hit that and, and like what Terence McKenna would say is dive into the cosmos and know that there's going to be a big flowery bed to catch you on the other side. 
if you're ready to do that, then that's where the change occurs. That's where the system just goes, all right, we'll let that go. We'll let that story go. You're okay without that story now. Like, you know, you, you can exist without that story being present and your identity is not going to be shifted without that present. Like it's, it's part of that egoic mindset. Hmm. It's pretty epic. (laughs) (laughs) I, it, it never, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. It never ceases to amaze me that, um, we really don't know what the fuck's going on with the human body. Mm. As, uh, when we learn more stuff, we, we learn more and then we realize we know less. Um, and then there's so many levels to this. There's so many different approaches to quote unquote mental health or what we like to call cognitive fitness. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily going in and taking Wellbutrin or an antipsychotic, antidepressant. It's not necessarily talk therapy. It might be for some people. And what really gets me is when I, I talk to an individual and they, they're talking about the mental state they're in and they're like, I've tried everything. I'm like, okay, what have you tried? Oh, I've tried uh, pharmaceuticals and I've tried talk therapy. I'm like, okay, you haven't tried everything. You've tried everything <laughs> you know and you're aware of. You haven't tried everything. There, in, in the clinic I work in, I'm a decent doctor and I'm not always able to make everybody better. And I tell the patients, like, when I get to that point, I'm like, Hey, I'm not able to make you better. You haven't exhausted everything. Keep looking. There is somebody out there that is going to be able to help you. Um, and hopefully at that point I can point them in the right direction. And yeah, um, there's always more, there's always more, uh, you just got to keep digging. Um, I'd like you to talk about uh, what you're doing with this uh, running across the country, if you don't mind, <laughs> if you're still doing it after your recent injury. Oh, yeah. I, I want to do it more now. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Give us a little detail on what's going on with that. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a metaphor, first and foremost, because when I left uh, my treating physician at the time that I did all the scans, I want to put this out there. I spent 20 hours in an MRI machine. Okay, not Whoa. not consecutive. The longest day I did was six hours, but I've spent 20 hours in an MR, MRI machine to gather all the data that our veteran affairs needed in order to make a decision on whether they would support me or not, which they really didn't. What, what 20 hours? What the fuck were they scanning besides so, everything? <laughs> yep, everything. Uh, the, the physician I was working with at the time had predictions and he would like come up with an hypothesis of what like based upon my uh, physiotherapist and my chiropractor would report, send the report over and he'd say, all right, we're going to scan for this. I'm not certain. He must've been getting a rebate or something because every time I went back in, they're like, why are you back? We scanned for this last time. But as it would be every time I went back, something new would pop up on the scan. And so I don't know whether that stirred the honeypot for him. And I was like, I'm just going to keep sending you back until we stop finding things. So metaphorically, I was told by the time you're 35, you're not going to be able to run. You're not going to be able to run anymore. You're not going to be able to ride. You're not going to be able to lift weight. And so, yep. Let me pause you. Um, we talk about the power of our words mm-hmm. and the influence that we have with the words we speak. 
I don't know how many times I have patients coming in where other doctors say stuff like that. And you know how much that fucks with your brain? If, if you're not strong enough, like yourself, to say, no, fuck you, I'm going to do this. That statement right there by any anybody, re, regardless of what profession, but as a doctor, you're held on a pedestal and you have a lot of power behind you and a lot of power behind your words. And when you say that to people, you're giving them an early grade. Mm-hmm. Saying that is just, it's murder, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Um, there are numerous people that have gone, ha- had a diagnosis like that and then gone about and actually doing what you're doing. So fuck, I hate that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to get off my soapbox. Continue, Will. Oh, I love that. I'm up there with you, man. Um, I, I haven't I haven't done any of the enlisted certifications. I've spent a lot of time doing story work with and amongst all of you fine people and on my own as well. And, and nothing gets a person to unfold like four-step story work right mm-hmm. uh, and something i continuously say to my clients is you tell a bad dog that it's a bad dog for a long time guess what it's going to be yep right it's going to be a bad dog you treat a, a dog well until it's a good dog it's going to do exactly that for you and you're going to have a great relationship and that's what the relationship is with our language and with our words right you you, you get told this thing all the time once again, epigenetics, your genes and your biology is going to start behaving the way that it's told because words mm-hmm. have energy, words have vibration, right? Yep. When they said that to me, you're not going to run, you're not going to ride. I hope you really enjoy the next couple of years. Oh, God. <laughs> in my head, all I see is him going like this. And then in my head, I'm just like, fuck you, you know, because I am. And so the run is a metaphor. It is the big fuck you. It is the, you know what? I am going to run across Australia. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to teach this education of breath work to veterans and first responders so that they too can go back to their treating physicians and go, fuck you. I'm getting better. I don't need your medicine anymore. I don't need your talk therapy anymore. Albeit it works for some people. It's about empowering ourselves Mm -hmm. with language. It's about empowering ourselves with the possibility that anything is possible. Hell, like I listened to an audible book from Joe Dispenza that said he built his spine again. I went and tried it and made the same coffee, sat there and drank it by the ocean, and now I'm running again. Like, how old are you? 33 years old. <laughs> Do you feel like you're going to end the whole running thing in two years and be a cripple by then? I am the fittest and healthiest I've ever been in my life right now. Yeah. Apart from my foot. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, I, I'm 38. And I tell people this quite a bit. I feel better at 38 physically, mentally, emotionally than I did in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, cont- well, first of all, what happened to your foot? <laughs> and then continue with this running metaphor that you're doing, because this is fucking awesome. So the, the foot, um, I was taking part in a psychedelic experience with some very, very close friends. Um, the night before I had uh, facilitated a space to where we were uh, applying breath work and MDMA together as a practice to um, get into a space of healing trauma. It's something that I've been studying for the last two years, something I'm quite passionate about, but I don't apply it to anyone else, but like one or two very, very close friends who I've done most of my psychedelic experiences with. 
Um, so I'd had a, a, a super big evening the night before facilitating that space for a very close friend uh, to which he got to an incredible transformation. And it was like watching his complexion change in that moment, that, those types of experiences. Mm -hmm. The night after was my turn. Uh, and so I uh, sat with psilocybin and I had taken a much lower dose than I normally do. I usually take a heroic dose. It interacts with my physiology a lot better. Uh, and this time I'd taken a lot lower dose. I was also going through some heavy shit. Um, this was three and a half, four weeks ago. I was going through some heavy shit. Um, it was more to do with co-parenting and my relationship with my previous partner and how I am as a father, which isn't to be questioned. It's the being separate from my children that was giving me the heavy shit. Um, at that point, I was sitting around a fire with these people and I decided i got to fucking let go of this. This is too heavy to carry around. I'm not, I'm sending this back to the cosmos and I'm going to focus on what I'm fucking good at. And that's being a good dad. And as I did that, I said to my sister, I'm going to lay down. She goes, okay. My mate who I'd spent the evening with the night before was serenading me with uh, Mozart's uh, third symphony on acoustic guitar. Uh, <laughs> so there were a lot of elements happening here. I lay down as I lay down, I let go. I drift off. A foot goes in a fire and oh, as God. foot goes in the fire. Um, by the time it's too late, I come to, and I'm like, Oh, I bring my foot up. I say to Sarah, I think I've been bitten by some. She goes, Oh shit, you've been burnt. And I'm like, okay. Powerful story in that the people that were with me go into fight or flight mode, apply, like they're triaging, they're playing first aid. And they're like, are you all right? Are you all right? And I'm like, I'm actually really, really good right now. I said, just, just leave me with the, the, the micro dosing of adrenaline and cortisol. I'll look after that. You guys look after the superficial shit. And they're like, okay. So they're pouring water, they're getting a bandage on it. Um, and they're doing something else. I'm just like cleaning it. No cold, just the water. And here I am breathing. And as I'm exhaling, I'm starting to slow down the adrenaline and cortisol. And as I'm doing that, I'm noticing that my pain receptors are fully embracing what occurred, but not sending the information back as dramatically because there's not that imbalance of flood the system with adrenaline and cortisol. There's not that imbalance because I'm controlling it. Sleep really, really well. And it's not until the next day that I, I, I wake up and I'm like, oh man, this is going to suck. And it was right there in that moment that my foot goes, ding, we're going to be sore today because I went, oh, this is going to suck power of words, mm -hmm. spelling, spells, yep. magic. And, and so I've spent the, the last three weeks uh, really focusing on healing my foot. Unfortunately, I've not been able to run. But fortunately, I've been able to be so present as a father with my kids that are with me full time, with my wife. I've been able to be present with myself and how I'm perceiving myself in my reality right now. Um, and so I've learned a lot. Right? I've learned a lot about myself by stopping and slowing down and being forced to. I can't run. Like I've got third degree burns on my toes. <laughs> I can't run, you know? Right. So uh, yeah, that's, that's been a really, uh, a really amazing blessing. Now the metaphor of the run, we're filming a documentary. And the reason I'm filming a documentary is uh, I want to put this education out there. Like we were talking about at the start of this, like we know so much, but we know so little. And everything mm -hmm. that I've experienced in this work continues to amaze me. And all these experiences that other people are having as a result of my facilitation continues to amaze me. 
So I'm like, well, what can we do to make this more exposed? Like put it on the main stage, give people a mic, give veterans and first responders a mic to say, what's your story? Tell us a story. We'll apply this education and we'll watch what unfolds. And so I'll be running from, it's not the most Western point, but it's the longest point across the country just to really rub salt in the wound for the physician. Um, doing a marathon every single day. And along the way, I'm going to have, I'm going to have uh, guests join me. I'm going to have veterans join me, first responders join me. And they're going to join me for the run or the walk or whatever they feel comfortable with. I'm going to give them the mic to say, tell us your story if they're open to that. Um, and then we're going, to, we're going to work through it. You know, there's going to be parts of the documentary where you'll see me working with these people and working through it, getting the system back to normal so that they can get back to a normal life whatever that looks like for them. Hmm. You mentioned the, the breathing, going back to the burnt foot. Uh, <laughs> this, this is, this is epic. Um, and we'll get back to your, your documentary. Uh, one of the, our, the warriors that went through our program, Brian, we, we talk about very simple basics about breath and, the power of our breath. Um, he broke his, uh, I think he cracked both his uh, radius and ulna. Mm -hmm. And this was at when he was at work at the fire department. And instinctually, he went to his breath. He's like, low and slow, nice and calm. And he was calm and he was able to triage it. And everybody around him was like, dude, Brian, you were calm. Like, and your arm was a uh, dinner fork foot uh, deformity. Like it, it was stepped. And he's like, he came back to us and he talked about it. He's like, yeah, I was calm because I was able to um, control my breath. And it, it's so simple to do that. And yet they don't teach that in school. Mm -hmm. They teach us geography, social mm -hmm. studies, and nothing you ever remember after the first year of being out of school. Um, <laughs> so now that we have a, a burnt foot and um, you're kind of uh, – put off for a little while when is this uh run happening uh how long is it going to take when's a movie coming out because it's a documentary right yes sir starts i will be taking off on the 7th of september 2022 that's my birthday um and i am imagining it will take four months it should take three and a half like with the numbers uh but i'm giving myself four months so that I can incorporate uh, and, and create a container of trust and support for the veterans that are joining me. I don't want it to be rushed. I don't want it to be forced simply because we're filming a documentary. I want it to be natural and I want it to feel safe and secure for those that give me permission to, to be with them. Um, so I give myself four months. If it takes longer, it takes longer. Uh, the movie, I imagine uh, in production, we will, be go we will be spending the first six months post uh, going over it and deciding uh, what we want to keep in, what we want to take out. We're not setting a shot list. We've set environments and geographical locations, but we're not setting a shot list because I want it to be natural. I want it to flow. Um, but I'm also taking time as well after the run to integrate myself, something that comes quite profoundly as uh, I avoid using this word, but it, it is becoming more relevant in the practice that I do becoming a healer or being in the healing space is that I'm very empathic with taking people's energy on. And so you can imagine after putting my body through physical stress and emotional stress, four months of running, 
as well as working with individuals who have struggled or are struggling, there's a level of energy that I would be taking on. So I'm going to take some decompression time after the run mm -hmm. uh, to which I don't want to think about it at all, to be honest. And the film crew will be working on that behind the scenes. I imagine within 12 months after the run, it will be out and we are going to independently release it. If I've not manifested being on Netflix or anything like that, I don't like the idea of uh, being supported by a platform like that. And more often than not nowadays, I'm like about starving the corporation. I'd rather starve the corporation than not. Uh, if I had the opportunity to put it on something like Gaia, I would. Uh, but I would like to independently um, stream it or get it out there so that the proceeds go directly back to the people that I'm supporting. Mm -hmm. I have been not a part of, but experienced so many times. Charities have said, oh, we're going to give this money back to these people. Money's not to be seen. It's like, motherfuckers, what, where's the money? You know, like where you said this charity was supporting this and it's not. We saw it with the Wounded Warrior Project with Under Armour years ago, right? Like it happens all the time. So for me, it might not get to as many people, but it doesn't feel aligned unless I get to go, well, proceeds are going to this and that's, that's final. So mm -hmm. I imagine 12 months uh, after you, you'll see um, a trailer, you'll see some, some shorts for it and, and then it'll be independently released. Good for you for taking that down regulation time. We, we talk about this a lot with the people we work with. Um, you can't pour from empty glass. Like, especially with a four month uh, thing of running across the fucking country. <laughs> like, yeah, you're going to, you're going to have an empty cup and you're not able to support anybody from an empty cup. So well, good for you for uh, recognizing that. Um, I wish more people would recognize that. And that's what, that's why we're here. We get to show that. Um, is there any, I, I know you're very, like you just said, you're very empathic. And a lot of, from my understanding, talking to you, a lot of what the breath work you do is tailored very much tailored and you, it sounds like you do a very extensive background on people and it's again it's tailored can you give a broad generalization of any technique that can be beneficial for, for everybody yeah for our listeners yeah in the last month i've been prescribing five minutes a day Mm -hmm. Breathing in and out of your nose, into your belly. Five minutes a day, in and out of the nose, into the belly. It, <laughs> it, it, people are like, okay. People that are listening are like, okay, that, that's stupid simple. And yet so effective. <laughs> like, I, I, mm -hmm. I, I see in the clinic... I see people with back pain. I see people with neck pain. I see people with all kinds of pain and I assess their breathing. I'm like, I don't say this to them, but your breathing's fucked up. Mm -hmm. And all I tell them to do is 10 deep breaths a day. And they come back one teenager. He was uh, 14 years old, mid back pain. I was like, teenagers should not have mid back pain. Mm -hmm. uh, 10 belly breaths in the morning, 10 belly breaths at night came back in the week. And he's like, uh, my back pain's gone. I'm like, yeah, you're welcome. Of course. Simple. Of course. <laughs> Very simple. 
Uh, so, so do it, everybody. Five minutes of deep belly breathing through the nose. And I, I could double down on that, actually, Lance. Uh, Please do. Speak more, more to that point. And we're talking about structural integrity here of the, um, the torso or the abdomen wall. Now, breathing is made up of several systems, right? It's made up of our respiratory system, our circulatory system, musculoskeletal, lymphatic. There's a lot of behavioral and patterns that come into breathing correctly. Uh, alongside that, which is where most people neglect, is our breathing mechanics, the physical aspect of breathing. Mm -hmm. uh, henceforth, we create compensatory behaviors in the body and people are rocking up to you and going, I got a bad back. No shit. Your, your core is like non-existent. Your abdomen wall is not doing what it's supposed to. Your psoas are probably about this tight and this small because you're sitting in this forward position. Most people are kyphotic. Like there are a lot of things that go into that. So if you're going to do five minutes of belly breathing uh, a day or even twice a day, I do it. I do five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night, every single day. To double down on that to increase uh, the structural integrity and you'll start to notice the more physical aspects of health and well-being. Uh, you can place your hands where the, the ribs meet the abdomen wall, right, that junction there, uh, and press against on your inhales. Uh, you're inhaling deep, pushing the belly out against the hands while the hands are pushing down. And on your exhales, you can come out the mouth, but imagine you're fogging up a mirror. And when you do that, it's called ocean breathing. When you do that, ah, feel your belly tense, right? Abdomen, the obliques, it all tenses up. Perfect. It's like a little exercise for your respiratory system, breathing mechanics, is to get that working. And when you can do that twice a day, like 30 days, all of a sudden your back's not overworking, your hips aren't imbalanced, you know, because more of the body is doing more of what it should be doing. It, it, the first thing, well, one of the first things we do once we're born and our bilga cord is cut is we breathe. Mm -hmm. And breathing uses muscles, specifically the uh, respiratory diaphragm. If we don't use it, just like any other muscle in the body, if we don't use it, we lose it. And just like any other muscle in the body, we can retrain it. And we can retrain it to do some pretty fantastic things and some pretty cool things. Um, where can people find you? Uh, I have been most active on Instagram, uh, where I attempt to give some value uh, and talk about conversations that I believe need to be had out in the open. Um, so I hang out about there. I run two uh, businesses at the moment, which are both co-creations with some incredible people. One is a platform called Breathcast. And you gentlemen know about Breathcast. Sean is an avid user. Actually, I think he's my most, him and Sammy would be my most attended uh, users. Um, Breathcast is a bridge and it was intentionally supposed to be a bridge. It was an opportunity to be able to go, okay, you don't know what Breathwork is. Here's five episodes a week where I will guide you, myself and my coaches will guide you 10 to 15 minutes a day and apply some very, very simple techniques. And you just listen. You listen and do what, what the voice can, like guides you to do. And that was intentional. I wanted to bridge a gap to where, you know, people aren't going on YouTube and typing in Wim Hof and upregulating themselves further. I wanted people to get experience of all different aspects and experience what the body can do when it breathes well and breathes correctly. So there's that. There's Breathcast where people can go in and find us. Uh, and then there's Inflow. And Inflow is a online certification currently about to become an in-person certification when I get to the States next year. Uh, yeah, 
touring for four months around the States and Costa Rica um, to where we'll be running a five-day retreat. So you, you'll arrive, we'll condense the 12 weeks into five days, it'll be more experiential and you'll get the opportunity to work in person and curate uh, a space for yourself as a breathwork coach, practitioner, facilitator, whatever you want to label yourself, but take away a tool to further increase the productivity and value of the community that you thrive in. So Brady and I are building something that gives anyone and everyone the opportunity to take away breathwork and go, we can use this to 10x the other thing that we're doing. For instance, if you arrived, you did the five-day thing, you could take, come away and go, all right, here's this breathwork thing. Now most of your patients aren't coming back. Yay. You don't want them coming back, right? You don't want patients returning. Yep. <laughs> so we're like 10xing the thing that we're thriving in. And so that's what Brady and I are attempting to build with that. And on that, uh, you could speak to Benjoy and Grant, um, Grant Thomas, who did level one. They were my first to graduate. Uh, the most profound experiences that they had were their five minutes of nasal breathing at the start of the day, every single day, were the most profound experiences that they ever had throughout the 12 weeks that they attended. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. It doesn't have to be sexy. It does. I mean, it's nice it, hel- if it is. It helps be sexy. I mean, <laughs> it helps. But yeah, keep it simple. Um, and I, I know both you and Brady, and I'm excited. That's going to be good. Um, so for the Americans out there, keep your eyes open. This will be, this will be good. Um, they'll show up. Um, any last words? Uh, class three for inflow starting in January. If anybody is uh, interested in learning more about an in-depth exploration of breath work and how to regulate the nervous system, class three will be starting in January. It will tie up uh, the first week of April. Uh, April is when Brady and I will be starting our tour where we'll be running uh, two retreats a month with a workshop either side. Uh, the first one will be in Costa Rica uh, before a uh, ayahuasca retreat. And then we will be facilitating at the ayahuasca retreat as well. Uh, and then after that, we'll be going continental US and, and touring around stateside in fuck yeah places. All right, man. Um, thanks everybody for listening. Really appreciate it. Uh, William, thanks for showing up. This has been great. Uh, everybody comment like share we love violent disagreements and uh we'll catch you on the other side thanks everybody